Hi, and welcome everyone. Thank you for being here tonight for this first episode of Brainstorms Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, a speechtherapypd.com podcast. I'm Renee Garrett, and I will be your host this evening and hopefully for many other evenings. Before we get started, we have a few items that we need to alert you to and share. So just some housekeeping ideas. Um, We have CEUs for this podcast. So um, this is offered for 60 minutes, which is 0.1 ASHA CEUs. So let's get started. I'm so excited. So we have tonight Dr. Linda Meyer, PhD, CCC, SLP joining us. And so we have our financial disclosures for her and for myself. Dr. Myers retired from clinical services and teaching and speech language pathology. She has no relevant financial or non-financial relationships with vendors, manufacturers, or service providers discussed in this podcast. She will receive an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for her participation tonight. For non-financial disclosures for Dr. Meyer, she does continue to serve as a volunteer and a non-paid trustee on the Board of Trustees of the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. This foundation raises funds to sponsor scholarships and research awards for graduate students and undergraduate students in communication disorders who are attending programs in Virginia colleges and universities. For my financial disclosures, I will be receiving reimbursement for this podcast from speechtherapypd.com, and I am an employee of a a paid employee of a large um, health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I also serve on the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia as the secretary. Without further ado, I'm going to read um, Dr. Meyer's bio, and I'm so excited again to have her tonight and excited for you to be here. So Linda Meyer, PhD, CCC, SOP, received her BS and MS in speech language pathology and special education from Old Dominion University and her PhD from Vanderbilt University. She began her career in Chesapeake, Virginia's public schools and has taught in universities in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia, as well as having worked in veterans hospitals, home health, acute care hospitals, and is the retired director of communication services at the Woodrow Wilson Rehabilitation Center after serving 30 years there. She served the Speech Language Hearing Association of Virginia board as vice president for professional affairs, vice president for speech language pathology, president elect, president, and is also a Speech Language Hearing Association of Virginia fellow. She is the current treasurer for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Thank you so much for being here tonight, Dr. Meyer. Um, She told me I could call her Linda because we know each other, but want to give credit where credit's due. So thank you for being here tonight. So let's let's start by talking about the history of um, AAC, so alternative and augmentative communication devices, and and just sort of where all that started, and how it evolved early on in the, I won't say what decade. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's actually it it predates me because you know we speech pathologists have been doing things to try to get people who have difficulty communicating communicating for for eons using pictures and gestures and and all sorts of things. Um, My first experience with it was when I worked at the Veterans Hospital in Nashville. Several of our veterans came to us. Some came with communication devices, and that was when the communication devices were just scanning systems. They were huge. They, Mm -hmm. They could take up a whole desk. And they would scan pictures and you would have to guess what that picture meant or you would there be a phrase on it or something. So they've come a long, long way. The first one that I thought was really great was the uh, Canon Communicator, which I don't know if you've ever seen one. It's about four by six and it had a little keyboard and it would had a little tape and you could print out sentences and phrases. And I had a patient come to me at the VA actually from Woodrow Wilson. Um, he was heading back to Tennessee and 
he had a whole envelope of all his little phrases and he would pull them out so he didn't have to type, type them over again. But Oh, that's um, amazing. Yeah, it had no that's speech like- output. It ha- didn't have it had this little like little tiny ticker tape type of thing that would come out. Um yeah, so, I remember the old uh, alpha boards where you it, it was like a big giant square right. and you had the person's face and you had to kind of, that was like the pre. Oh, right. Um, yeah. Pre, right. I want to say prehistoric eye gaze, but <laughs> <laughs> where they looked at and there was mostly alpha, just alphabet characters mm-hmm. and yeah. um, that was used to do eye gaze yeah. for spelling. Right. So it's yeah. phenomenal how far it's come. And then I guess I think Pranky Romic might have had the first speech output device, at least the first one I saw. Um, and I thought it was a miracle. And now when I see those old ones and listen to the speech output, it's horrible. It's just, horrible. <laughs> you know, digitizing speech and synthesizing speech has come so far that now you look around to see if it's a real person speaking as opposed to a speech generating device. So um, and the access has changed. Um, it used to be if people couldn't either type or point, um, they really couldn't have very good access other than with that. I can't remember what that board was called that you described. Um, I used I used it quite a bit early on with some folks. Um, but then, you know, sp- switch, excuse me, switches were developed. Um, all kinds of scanning systems, head pointing with, you know, um, sensors, um, all the way to now we have eye gaze. And of course, now we have some, some brain interface systems coming out that, um, I don't, they're not fully functional yet because you have to have a little bit of surgery to get them done. So you have to get through the FDA to get them approved, but the world just keeps changing. One of the things that I learned when I first started doing this, the reason we're able to do it is from because of the space program. Oh, okay. So swords into plow, swords into plowshares. <laughs> the miniature miniaturization of computers is what okay. kept, you know, what made those devices from this size to this size to on your iPhone now. Um, you know, there's um a lot of um, the technology that was developed that we use now was developed for space and and for war, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's managed to evolve into something that that's highly functional and you can use with you know really young children all the way up to I've used it in hospice. So it's it's a lifelong option now for people who either can't speak or whose speech is not intelligible to everybody or they need it in certain situations where some people understand them, but at school or at work, they're not understood. Um, yeah. And I think that's a great point because I'm I'm actually trialing a device right now with someone who had a midbrain stroke about, oh gosh, it's been about 18 months now. And he has hyperkinetic dysarthria that was misdiagnosed initially and has a lot of palatal, laryngeal, and pharyngeal myoclonus. And so sometimes his in, his intelligibility is greater than others. But what he really struggles with is that autonomy and independence for things like ordering in a restaurant that he goes to frequently, um, being able to talk to someone on the phone. He just avoids that because it's difficult. And so it's it's interesting that you mentioned the technology and advances and how even just the voice selection has changed. So we kind of ran through uh, voices and he had a blast. We had the Australian accent going, we had a British accent, we had a Spanish speaking, um, and he just was excited about the possibility. So it's incredible to see how even in my career, how different it is now from 15 years ago. It can be so personalized now. I remember going to a, a conference, there was a vocational OGCOM conference that um, called PEX that was, I don't know if it's still going on, but it was held for a number of years in Pittsburgh. The first one I went to, it was hard to know who was talking because everybody had the same voice. Right. Everybody had either Perfect Paul or I can't remember what all the names were now, but there were like eight voices and everybody in the room had 
one of three of those because not all of these were all adults and some of the voices that were available were child voices. So they were very limited. And so everybody sounded the same. So if you had localization problems, you just just weren't sure who was talking to you. So yeah, it's changed so much and the access to it has changed so much in terms of funding and, and, um, you know, there was so much advocacy going on for so many years to get insurance and Medicare and Medicaid to pay for devices because we kept hearing that it was educationally necessary, so it's not medically necessary, or it's vocationally necessary, so the schools or the employer or voc rehab should be paying for it. And those are all options, but um, the funding for even getting the devices and the training has has changed so much. But it, it took a lot of um, screaming and yelling and writing letters and writing reports and rewriting reports to get there. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because I don't really have the historical knowledge about how that came about. And in fact, I really didn't know that you were my go-to person until I talked to someone else who had talked to you, <laughs> kind of put that bug in my ear. But, you know, thinking about just insurance coverage in general and how even now how difficult it is to have services covered, how did that even sort of come about and how did you and the team that you were working with, how did you sort of navigate all of that? Because that's a huge, huge thing for us now who don't have to, we struggle a little bit, but not like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, that has, that was, that was a long slog. I can tell you how it happened in Virginia, but I can't tell you, you know, for anybody who's out of state, but um, when we first decided to do augmentative communication on a big scale where we were going to serve lots and lots of people. Um, We, we, when we would submit to Virginia Medicaid or to Medicare, um, we were a hundred percent denied hundred percent. We never got through. Um, But what we discovered was that if we talked to, to the providers and um, appealed we were getting probably about 80 percent approvals okay. um which is a huge you know that's huge it's yeah, a lot of work great. but it's huge <laughs> unfortunately yeah i mean fortunately for us we were in a position where we could take the time to rewrite the reports and rework things and talk to people um not everybody i know today with productivity standards has that opportunity um but that's what we did um the staff that I worked with um, that did the augmentative communication evaluations would write their report and we would just tell the family, when you're denied, get it to us right away because you only have 30 days to appeal. Um, And then we would appeal it. And then one of the things that um, still helps is if you're denied again, is to call and talk to ask to speak to the physician making the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, getting to know the people in this case at Medicaid or the or Aetna or wherever, because somebody's making that decision for whatever reason, and um, usually they they will send you the reason. But if you think that you can work through that reason, whether you know if they say, well, it's only educationally necessary, this kid you know only needs it for school. Um, one of the uh, an example of one of those cases that we had was we had a, a young child with not a young child a middle middle school child with um severe cp um no usable speech and we were told well it's only for education and it happened that um he wound up having to have surgery um for an abscess tooth which was just really noxious, terrible surgery for him because of the spasticity and everything else that was going on with him. And we took that information and said, so if he, because they knew, knew he'd had a fever for a while, they knew he wasn't feeling good, but he wasn't able to tell them what hurt. And right. we used that and kind of backpedaled and said, so if he'd been able to tell us on this date where he hurt, 
the chances of them having actually to go to surgery as opposed to treating the abscess would have, you know, that would have saved money, time, risk of surgery, all those kinds of things. And actually, they listened to us and said, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Now, it wasn't as simple as that, but that's what we took. We took that information and said, you know, yes, it is educationally necessary. But what we want is this child to be able to say, I'm hungry, you know, now, a lot of people are fed automatically, so maybe being hungry isn't the most important message, but saying something hurts. One of my young adults um, was being abused, and she was able, with a very simple system, to tell us that. And, and that's huge. Yeah. It's a safety issue. It's a medical... I mean, it's all... As you know, it's it's a complex issue, but... So what we started doing was taking on a case-by-case basis on every denial, we appealed and spoke to the issue that they gave us. And eventually what happened in Virginia was DMAS, the the agency that heads up Medicaid, created a committee um, to advise them on creating a policy for AAC reimbursement. And I... (laughs) I got to be on that committee, um, I guess, because I had bugged them enough. Um, another, <laughs> pers- another person that some people in Virginia will remember was Helen Navas, who was at the CP Center in Richmond. She'd been doing the same thing that I was doing, but only with kids and cerebral palsy. And we we collaborated a lot on our appeals. And so they they created a committee of, I think there were at least three people that were providers, AAC providers, and then some other representatives for DMAS. And we got to actually write the policy um, about what would be funded and why it would be funded and when it would be funded. Um, they cleaned it up. You know, the lawyers took it after we finished with it. But it was, I think the opportunity was because we had advocated for so long and for so loud. I like that. So loud. That yeah, <laughs> they thought of us when they said, you know, we got to do something about this. We're getting a lot of grief. The other thing that happened back in the, mm, I think he started in the 80s. There was an attorney in New England named Lou Golinger. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He worked with cases around the country on funding for um, for augmentative communication devices and services. Because, you know, a device is no good if you can't teach them to use it. And there's there was one state that started out saying, yeah, we'll pay for the device, but we're not paying for the therapy. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's insane. Right? Yeah, yeah, surely. And and also people don't realize that who are outside, I think, of our field and even some people in our field, because I know that some of the folks that I've encountered did not necessarily have like I had an AAC class in graduate school. Mm-hmm or an undergraduate one, it's one of the two, I'm I'm getting old, I can't remember, but we had a class and it was taught by someone who was an AAT specialist in the public schools. Mm -hmm. And so she taught us the things about access and symbols and pictures and black and white versus color, every little nuance that we needed to know um, in order to provide an effective AAC evaluation from a low-tech system to a, a high-tech system. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people who never had that, and so they don't realize that it's not as simple as just throwing this, like at the hospital, they have this communication board that's yellow background with pictures, text, and blocks, and there's probably 38, 36 to 40 symbol. Yeah pictures to choose from and and you know you get someone with a global aphasia or um a tbi who can't attend and they don't know they can't do that that's not as simple as starting out with a yes or no or a a very basic like six picture selection so it's very interesting that you know that the work was so hard fought because there were so many hands in the pot who didn't really understand what yeah. the need was to begin with. Well, and that that continues to be, um, it's it's a professional issue. It's also an ethical issue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for a while, you still, we, we depend on our manufacturers and our reps heavily, but um, it got to the point where some of the manufacturers were sending their rep in 
and always recommending their device. They were doing the evaluation and, and we get into all kinds of ethical issues with that because they're there to make a sale and they might be a speech pathologist, but they're still in a position where, you know, there's, there's boundaries issues there that we, we need to be attending to, but I didn't mean to get off on those, but um, it's important that if we're going to see somebody for an outcome, we need to get some supports that um, that are going to fight and work for the client and the best interest of the client or the student or the child or whatever. Um, yeah, and and to look at what's changing. Um, one of the things that I've always done is talked about um, who can benefit benefit from an augmentative communication evaluation and a device. And it was it, what helped me in writing my reports and in evaluating a client were to look at, is their speech temporarily impaired or is it permanently impaired, how severe it is? Um, if their spoken speech is absent or unintelligible to most listeners, but not all listeners. So what are the situations where we need to, to augment <laughs> or to be an alternative system? Um, it's our speech is severely impaired, but expected to improve over time. Right. Um, I had a, a young brain injured man come in to see me one day <laughs> and he had one of those Canon communicators because they told him he, uh, he would never talk again. <laughs> Warning, don't ever tell your patient they will never talk again. He was dysarthric <laughs> and he threw that device across the room at me and he threw, excuse, I'm sorry, something just fell. Um, he threw the device across the room at me and said, they told me I'd never talk again. Um, and he wouldn't use the device. Well, he didn't need it most of the time. And we, we we worked out some alternative systems for him. But he did get better. I mean, when he was first injured, he had no speech. Sure, yeah. And, and we see that. Better. He did get better. On the other hand, we saw lots and lots and lots of ALS patients Mm-hmm. who were still talking, but we're going to get, we're going to lose their speech and they were losing it rapidly. Um, so the device that you choose has to change with that person. Um, you want something that's functional, functional enough that you can get more function as you need it, or you can back off some of the function that as you don't need it anymore. Um, I've also had patients who's, speech varied during the day. Mm-hmm. I had a brilliant young woman who had cerebral palsy, got through school. She did fine the first half of every day. Um, by noon, she could barely be understood. So the device that we needed to work with her needed to, you know, she didn't need it all day long, but she did need it um, to finish school to finish her. She was, she managed to create a little job for herself to deal with the public um, all day long because her, her speech deteriorated during the day from fatigue. Mm-hmm. And you see that with some of your older, you know, some of your stroke patients as well, some of those folks. So looking at what the, um, what the speech pattern is, and what the expectation is, you know, if you're going to pay $10,000 for a device, you don't want it to last six months. You want it to last six years, if possible. I you know technology changes, but theoretically, you need it to last as long as it can, as long as they functionally need it. Right. Um, and, and now that's a nice feature is a lot of the device providers will give you because I this same gentleman I'm trying a device with right now that was a question that he had was how long is this going to last is it's going to be like my iPhone is sorry iPhone nah, it's okay. but he he said that he said in six months to a year is this going to be obsolete and so um the providers that are um, the reps for a lot of the AAC companies now are saying three to five years and at that point you're eligible for a replacement. We still will maintain um, any software updates, firmware upgrades, all that sort of thing. But just like we get with our phone, which is um, fantastic because I know back even again when I started my career that uh, you got a device and it was that was it. There were no 
solid mm-hmm. upgrades that happened every six to eight months or one year or support for three years. There were um, limitations on that. So that has really changed substantially. Um, but in looking back at like the funding and how that came to be, you mentioned a lot of it was due to the fact that you had and your colleagues had gone back and um, done these appeals for funding and things like that. You mentioned really early on the updates that sort of happened as far as funding for vocational versus educational. And so what about those other sources of funding that we tend to like? I don't really think about that. I just think about billing insurance. And so what does that look like? Well, I don't, that's real, I don't know if that's well known. Yeah. To be fair, we do need to look at all the funding sources that might be available for a person. Um, right. You know, if if the child is in the school and most of their needs are to communicate with classmates and teachers and that sort of thing, it it's reasonable and legal for the school to pay for a device. If somebody is wanting to go to work or return to work, there's every state has a vocational rehabilitation system and they pay for some devices. Okay. So, you know, you have to get them into that system. But like in Virginia, there's there are vocational counselors that are part of the Department of Aging and Rehab Services in every county, not every county, but every region, who will take on a case and and evaluate whether somebody would benefit from their services, and then they will pay for devices. There are some employers, I know when I was in Nashville, um, the Ford glass plant paid for hearing aids. Now, I know that's not augmentative communication, but there are odd things like that. They paid for hearing aids because the noise in the glass plant was so bad. They knew that they were causing hearing losses. (laughs) Wow. But there are special things like that, you know, certain insurance policies for different companies have different policies for covering family issues and things like that. Um, So it's good to find out about, you know, what is, what do they belong to and what are their policies look like, um, whether it's medical or other kinds of services. Um, Virginia has, um, for people who can't get coverage other ways, but might be able to pay Slowly, you know, pay on us. They have an assistive technology loan fund authority that's run by the state Mm -hmm. um, that you can apply for a low or no interest loan to buy a device. You can buy anything from a hearing aid to a a fully equipped van um, through that. And then you pay back the loan, but you don't have to pay it. at once and you can pay it you don't have to have a great credit rating because a lot oh, of the wow. people, a lot of people with disabilities don't have credit rating right um, so well, that's interesting about employers because i guess i never really thought about that but that's a yeah. that's a really great point because i have had several people who worked in um factories that maybe had um chemicals or something that mm-hmm. may be contributed to their disease process that right. precluded their speech problem, whether it was cancer, whether it was stroke or both, yeah. because I had someone um, when I first started an outpatient who was very young and he had stage four lung cancer and underwent treatment at the age of 38 mm-hmm. and at 40 had a stroke related to his uh, radiation that he had for his lungs for the mm-hmm. cancer. So. Um, he was someone that early on would have benefited from a device, but he was he was not having it. He was not having it. But it would have been interesting to see if the company, because it was a, a manufacturing company, if they would have had some sort of yeah. stipend or um, grant funding that would yeah. have been helpful. Some of the other things to look at that are really off the wall, um, some banks have um, trusts that people have left to them. And mm-hmm. some of them are specific to helping people with disabilities or specific to a particular um, disabling condition, MS or, you know, something like that. Um, so it's always useful to look at some of those other places. Um, there's Lou Golink. This is really old, <laughs> but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I was looking for some of this, the information on, on some of the history 
before, you know, in preparation for this. And um, there used to be a, a newsletter called Augmentative Communication News. And Lou Golinker did the issue for December of 2006, and it's all on funding, and it talks about different funding sources. has a little bit of the history, too, but it kind of opens your mind to like, oh, well, we could look at this or we could look at that. Um, there's some options. Like I said, it's dated, but as I looked at it, it wasn't it wasn't unuseful. <laughs> it was it was still okay. functional information. Um, yeah, that's that's really good because we don't. Again, I think you know we're clinicians now. We have access to not always, but most of the time, things like Medicare or Medicaid, which yeah. most of our patients who are permanently disabled have access to, or certainly our geriatric yeah. patients. But even the the variance among Medicare funding and what their um, their coverage looks like. Yeah. I had one recently with a seventy five dollar copay per visit that was a Medicare patient in her eighties. So she just had a really crappy Medicare plan. Yeah. And so looking at what those alternatives are that we really may not if we're not doing. AAC every single second of the day, or we're right. not an AAC specialist, but we certainly utilize that in our practice. I think it's helpful to know that there's so many other ways that we can fund that. Yeah. Um, talk an, to me. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to make one point. Um, the one thing in Virginia is um, often people will get on Medicaid and then they'll be switched to a Medicaid HMO. The mm -hmm. HMOs do not pay for equipment. Right. So you want to warn your patient, don't let them switch you to an HMO um, because of this, because of the equipment. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a bad medical policy, but it's not great for anybody who needs technology of any sort. Right. Well, and so I think I know in Virginia we have TTAC and I mm -hmm. think other right. states also have a similar version of that. So um, what do you know about how that came to be? And was that something that was all I, again, this is something I didn't know about until I was a student. And we happened to have a really good one at um, Old Dominion. And I know um, teaching adjunct right now at JMU and they have a really good T tag. Yeah, they have a long term one that's been very good. Yeah. I don't know how those they, they were federally funded through, okay. Department through Department of Education. But um, and I think this the university they were plan to be housed in a university. TTAC, somebody's asking, TTAC is a oh, technical assistance center. Technology, mm -hmm. technology is the first T, technical assistance center. Mm -hmm. There are other TACs also for different parts of education, um, but a TTAC is a technical assistance center for technology. Um, and so and what they, they kind of do, um, like when I was a student, we had a library where we could go and, and look at not only some of the devices, but look at um, some examples of what devices work with XYZ diagnosis and, and maybe how to implement that. So it's a really, it's a library essentially for AAC. They also the provide um, tech, technical assistance. Like I was asked to go into the home of young a couple young children which is not my area <laughs> but i was the only one that could do it at that point <laughs> um to help families adjust you know it, identify a switch that could work for their child or something like that because it's it's primarily for for children um or at least the one at james madison was for for birth to three or something like that um, but they do provide technical assistance to schools and um, other providers, as well as as the library. Yeah, and, and most of the universities, I know at least in Virginia, and I'm sure other universities in other states have a version of that. I just don't know what it would be called. Yeah, but you, the, the universities have to apply for the grant to ha to have one, but I don't know how that's done. Um, yeah, and. They you can access they have a website usually they have um you can email them you can actually physically go there i've, I've gone to old dominion before and um i actually had an ot friend who i grew up with who wound up working at t-tech for a little bit 
Um, so it's not just for speech language pathologists, but it's also for other professionals who may be working with whoever that person is, whether it's a child, a high schooler, and, and a, uh, uh, an adult who um, needs an AAC device. And so they provide some support for the professional, the families, and then also the, um, like Linda said, the technical aspects of, of what they need. Right. Because yeah. the, the reps are great. I mean, I worked with some really good ones from different AAC companies yeah. and, and they provide that as well. But it's nice to have it if you don't have the time or can't wait for an appointment or wait for an email to respond back to you. You can sort of dig in that way and, and call them or email and sometimes get a response a little bit quicker. Yeah. Yeah. It also helps to know your um, your OTs and PTs and your social workers who can get into some of the other background information with the family so that um you can learn about what their resources might be if they have an employer who might help or if they have, you know, a, a particular insurance policy that um, is particularly helpful on some of these things. Um, we can't know all of that stuff, but we need to find it out when we want, when we, when we turn around to have to advocate for something because something's been denied or, you know, they say, well, you need a, a less complex device than what you're asking for. Um, it's helpful to be able to turn to a whole team, even if even if you're not always with a team. Um, right. You kind of create your your group as you go along, <laughs> as your resources. I, actually, one of the things with Medicaid in Virginia is we call them so often um, that I think that's why Helen and I both wound up on this committee because we had gotten the name of one woman. And she'd say, well, do you want to talk to the doctor who wrote the report or wrote the denial? And I went, yeah, what's his name? <laughs> um, and they, they be, you know, as you develop, and this is just that whole advocacy stuff, as you develop relationships, then you you get better help as you go along to to support your 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 patient or your client, your student, depending on. Yeah, I mean, you develop that um, professional rapport, but then they know that they can trust you to bring them appropriate information that's helpful um, as well. And one thing I recently learned with um, one of my patients who has pretty significant aphasia, um, just because they're not in a facility like a skilled nursing or an IP, an inpatient rehab facility does not mean that there's not a social worker or even an RN who serves as a care coordinator particularly for our patients who are disabled with Medicaid and or Medicare who transitioned because they're permanently disabled. Mm -hmm. And I really, because I didn't work in outpatient until last year, I really did not know that. And so that's been helpful because I reached out to her primary care physician for some issues that were going on about social security checks and a whole bunch of other stuff and, and asking about um, AAC for her. And what I found out was there is indeed a care team behind the scenes for our patients with Medicare and Medicaid and that you can access them and advocate for your patients that way when you don't feel like uh, the care providers in the home are maybe acting in the best interest and not necessarily like an APS case, an adult right, protective right. services, but, you know, making sure that every avenue is advocated with and exhausted for um, access to care and access to devices and things like that and, and other equipment. So I think that's a really good point that you made about making sure you're advocating with a team mentality across settings. Well, and sometimes, you know, as you advocate for your patient, you wind up also advocating for changes in policy. Um, right. And you get, you know, you get into those doors. Um and knowing some of the some of the players and and knowing the background of of the child or the adult that you're working with in terms of what they really need gives you a little more um cachet i guess that's not the word i want but something like that um the, the, they're more inclined to listen to you once you've gotten to know them and they show, you know, show that you're not you know you're not benefiting from 
buying this device. <laughs> the child, the person, the patient is is benefiting and and we're all on the same side. That's that's always a big issue with with um advocacy if we get too aggressive. Aggression's good in some places, I think. <laughs> but um it sometimes it works to our advantage to to know them and to know what their priorities are because mm-hmm. um, some of those teams are overworked um just like some sure. pathologists are overworked <laughs> but you know <laughs> but um helping them out to understand what the need is um gives them the the freedom to then advocate for you on on what you're asking for. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we did have a um a conversation earlier, a chat earlier that asked about <laughs> I like that. Will Elon Musk get into AAC? I mean, Lord maybe. <laughs> it's possible. It, um it's, and then, yeah. It, I guess it depends on how much of milk of human kindness he has and then someone else asked about this what you mentioned the space program and how that sort of came to be was it spacex or nasa um i I would hear that (laughs) yeah yeah would have been nasa um you know because you couldn't put i mean it was even probably a little before nasa um because you couldn't put john glenn in space with the at that time computers were this as you could if you saw what was it the help no not the help oh shoot wrong movie um hidden figures hidden figures <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um you know computers were the size of a room you couldn't put that in space at that time right or yeah and even when i my my first job i worked in um a computer firm that did um eight millimeter backup subsystems long time ago and even that was um even though it was eight millimeter tapes the um machine that it went into was giant i mean the the room that we housed everything in had to be temperature controlled and if it wasn't and and again thinking about those aac devices like you mentioned weren't even really they were electronic but not in the terms of how we think of electronics now where you can put an app on an an ipad or an an iphone and just access it and it's you know this big and talks for you or um yeah yeah that little communicator was like it was electronics it was like wires and capacitors and things like that and it (laughs) put out a little piece it was like a teeny tiny typewriter It, it didn't have any any thought processes in it at all it was just a mechanical um but things have changed a lot you know so let's talk about um access a little bit because i think that's a great area to to sort of talk about where that started out and how that's progressed because now we're even talking about AI being involved in all sorts of things from um, speech language communication to swallowing disorders. And and so um, kind of talk to me about the history of switches and, and that sort of thing. Well, if we go way back, one of the first switches I used, I made out of tongue depressors and wires. I love it. <laughs> um <laughs> It, you know, got the rehab engineer to help me and we put something together. Um, luckily, we've gone way beyond that. Um, but yeah, um, early on, uh, most of most of what we were doing was switches and scanning. You know, you could scan the keyboard down and scan the keyboard across or whatever your display was. Um, I was very excited when we developed when they developed the head pointing where you put a little dot right here or on their glasses and all they had, and there was a sensor in the device that would read the, the mouse, basically. Um, all you had to, had to do was head movement. You didn't have to have arm movement because some of my patients, I had some very severe people with very severe cerebral palsy with the ataxia and they were in movement a lot. You, they couldn't control movement enough to point to something consistently. Right. Um, and, um, the head pointing was was just a wonderful change, um, and then the eye gaze came, 
Mm-hmm. Eye gaze was another thing that was developed for um, spies. <laughs> but, um, you know, then if you could keep, if you could manage eye movement and keep your head still, pretty much, um, you could use your eyes as the cursor. Um, mm-hmm. One of the wonderful things about that, I had a patient with ALS who was young. He was in his 40s. He had young children. And he was had the kind that was moving quickly. Um, and he was able to keep working. He, he was a computer programmer. And he was able to keep working because he was able to do the eye gaze until the point um, that he really had no more eye control. Um, but... You know, it was a tragic situation, but he was able to, you know, to still communicate with his kids privately, with his wife privately, um, and not have stock messages that the whole world can hear all the time. Um, You know, so those kinds of things have, you know, it's just gone from one thing to another. And the switches have gone to these from these big round red button switches to real subtle, you know, little I blink switches and um, I had one patient that we used her chin because it was the only thing that we could keep stable. Um, that's where it helps to have a PT and an OT to make sure mm-hmm. the trunk is stable and that whatever piece of body you want to use to access the switch, because I've had some people who could not use either eye gaze or um, head pointing because of eye problems because of ataxia, constant movement of the head, you know. Um, so a switch still is is an option for many people. Um, it's slower, but it works and, and you can get your message across. Um, but there's all kinds of switches out there now that um, eyebrow switches, which I would wear me out. I don't think I could. <laughs> Mine would probably not because I my face is usually very expressive <laughs> and animated, so I'd be communicating yeah. things that probably shouldn't. But um, there's 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 a whole you know you can go online and just find you know dozens and dozens of different kinds of switches and mounts for them, um, you know, so that if if you need to use a head switch, you can mount it to the wheelchair and it's keep it stable so that you know it's not moving out and falling down and things like that. Um, but it does help to have your team there. Um, I can do some of that stuff. It's not pretty. Um, <laughs> it's it's like mounting a device on a wheelchair. I can do it. It takes me four times as long as it took our rehab engineer to do it um, or our physical therapist who knew how to put the mount on the chair quickly. Um, right. So yeah. We had a patient when I I was actually a CF. I probably was only maybe two months out of school, and he had had a pretty significant brainstem stroke. And um, his access to speech when we finally got it was toe touch because toes, mm-hmm. he knew fingers were inconsistent, and our movement almost didn't exist. And um, this was back when. When you got a patient in inpatient rehab, their average rehab stay for something like that was around three months. Stroke on average was about four to six weeks. And so now to think that our patients come to inpatient rehab and it's 10 days to two weeks is yeah. insane. You can't even really evaluate in that time. No, mm-hmm. you can't. And you can't really make the progress that we're, we're um, really needing to make and certainly not for something as complex, like you mentioned, as a device that needs to be a long-term device, maybe more so for something short-term, but when it comes to thinking about, you know, more of a progressive neurological disease where maybe um, like in Parkinson's or ALS, where they are here one day and then they maybe get an illness because we did see this during the pandemic where those, that population of folks would get COVID and come to the hospital and then have a lot more deficit after and need something a little bit more long-term that we don't know if they would have needed as early on prior to con- to contracting um, COVID. So um, no, that's yeah. been a really interesting part too. Yeah, to I'm s- sure. 
Yeah, I, the the shorter stays, I think, are, are a big issue. One of the things that we were able to, part of our problem at, at Woodrow Wilson at the time that I worked there was we served the whole state, which, you know, is a mm-hmm. nice thing, but it's really hard to get a patient back to Fishersville, Virginia, um, on a regular basis for treatment. And we started doing some tele telehealth before we were actually supposed to be doing it, but we knew that they were, um, we had the system in every DRS office. So we just had to go down the hall to, you know, to where our system was. And if they could get to the nearest office, then we could do some things that way. Um, but we have to be pretty creative these days to do the follow-up that's needed um, and get reimbursed for it. That's, that's a real bear. Um, and I don't know, I've not checked with Virginia Medicaid lately as far as what they reimburse for for speech. I know they were doing experimental with schools for a while, but I don't know. I haven't kept up with it the last couple of years to see what's what's changed. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of everything has really changed. And and uh, again, I think the, the advocacy efforts are so important because a lot of people think that it sort of magically happens. But um, not only when we're talking about access to, like you mentioned early on, the access to the device was one thing, but the access to the training for the device was a whole other right. issue. And, for the troubleshooting and, when they have a problem. Yeah. And how do you how do you bill for that and how do you get the reimbursement? Because I know for the health system I work for, that's pretty much their focus is not always I hate to say it, but they they like to say quality care. But that doesn't appear to be the case with the productivity standards being the way that they are. The, The problem sometimes lies in insurance companies who now are reliant upon contract folks um, reviewing the records, the insurance records and the notes that we write and the evaluations that we write that are not clinical and maybe will deny the coverage, but then also won't necessarily entertain a peer-to-peer review. And so you you mentioned, um, you know, the advocacy efforts and being able to talk to the physicians. And I know in inpatient rehab, when I was there, the peer-to-peer had to happen between physician to physician. And so it's interesting that you all were able to do that as speech-language pathologists to the physician where now I don't know how prevalent that is across the U.S. if it's more yes. peer-to-peer, physician-to-physician. Yeah, I, don't know. I have to say I did once in a while say this was Dr. Meyer. Well, I mean, you are. <laughs> You're Dr. Meyer. I'm, You're like a legend. You know. But that was early on, you know. I wasn't lying. I just didn't tell them everything. <laughs> um, one of the things that we were trying to do, and actually I wrote a proposal to Medicaid that I don't, it hasn't gone anywhere as far as I've known, unless somebody else picked it up after I retired. But um, we were trying to advocate for Medicaid paying for at least OGCOM follow-up services um, because and used as an excuse, again, the medical necessity and the cost. Because Medicaid, uh, one of my patients um, had to be brought in in a, a van or an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, the trip to Woodrow from Richmond was $80. So it's like $160 round trip. Um, if they could, if they would pay for my therapy time and all they had to do was get her to the office where we could do the tele-rehab, um, it was going to cost a lot less because you didn't have to send an aide with her. You didn't have to have the driver. You did have to have a driver, but not for all day. It was, you know, just for the time that they were going across town. Um, and again, that's uh, looking at the finances sometimes helps in that advocacy effort. You know, it's not just the medical necessity, but okay, what's it costing you to send this person to see me? Um, you know. So, and I don't know, like I said, I don't know where tele-rehab is in, in um, Virginia right now, but I was keeping up with it and now I don't. So, but. Yeah, I know that we had some changes because in the pandemic they were covering a lot more and then we had, yeah. we had some things that changed because I have um, 
I had not my evaluation, but one of our other SLPs did an evaluation with someone who's early 20s, had a TBI, motor vehicle crash. And I really don't even know what the communication needs are, if it's strictly like a um, cognitive communication mm-hmm. disorder, or if it's more of an aphasia where she may need a device um, mm-hmm. because I didn't do the evaluation. And, and so uh, she had access problems for transportation. So I think that's another really good point is so many of these pieces for our patients who need um, AAC devices, it's not just the device, it's not just the therapy, it's all this other stuff, the transport, the geographical location and access to therapy services and and what does that look like for um, telehealth and can we do that and is it reimbursable? Um, It's, yeah, it's just such a mixed bag these days of all these other pieces and I think the pieces were always there in a different way because the pieces were there for access to the device and for switches and and how you went about getting that and now we still have some of those same issues that have now progressed into all of these other layered pieces that um just get really frustrating sometimes well and the technology keeps changing you know not only does the reimbursement keep changing and the you know the life of the speech pathologist keep changing in terms of productivity and and the requirements, but um, the technology is changing and the patient changes. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's it's a lot of moving parts. Um, You got to love it. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I did did love it. Um, (laughs) I don't know that I would still, but um, it, you know, it's so challenging. Um, It really keeps you on your toes, but it's when it works, it's just amazing to see, you know, to see what happens with your, with your, patient or your student Mm -hmm. and sometimes that takes time and and time of like feeling like you're beating your head on the wall Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you can attest to and and then when you see it come to fruition that's that's huge because you know that it's going to benefit so many other people um professionally and um for our patients so I think that is um hats off to you and um For all the things that you did before some of the rest of us that helped us have a little bit easier time in navigating AAC and, and access. So um, I think that is a. I think it's important for us to to remember that we do have some um, some influence and some power, um, not as much as we would like. But um, if we use it in an educated way, I think I think we can change things for a lot of people. Well, and I think strength in numbers too. We've yeah. we've seen that um, from state advocacy for different things that yeah. um, you've got someone who you've um, networked with and who you've known through different avenues, and then you've been able to access that and, and work together for a good and, and a common cause, and that's always huge. And that's one of the things I always say to my students, and sometimes during my talks for speech therapy PD, is they probably get sick of me saying it, but. Um, don't burn a bridge because whether it's whether it is a job that you need or a job someone else needs or an advocacy issue you never know who you're going to be at the table with as far as stakeholders go and um, sometimes those people that you need to be on your side may not be someone you want to go hang out with and and get a coffee or a wine with but they may be someone who has a stake in the game and is going to provide some uh, information that's helpful for access for our patients. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, it sounds trite, but I used to tell my staff when they go into these team meetings, just be nice. Be nice. <laughs> and it, I, it is, it's a, it's, it's a pitiful little thing to say, but you know. <laughs> it's true though, because kindness gets you a lot of places, even if you're not feeling that kindness when you leave the table and go home. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're at the table <laughs> together and you're on the, you know, shared common ground and advocacy, that is huge. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Well, thank you for inviting me. I First you. episode. This is so exciting. I'm so okay. grateful. <laughs> and I, I just really appreciate this and, and just your insight on, um, you know, the history of AAC, because I don't think a lot of people realize how far it's come 
because a lot of times now we feel still limited, but we're so much further ahead now than we were even 10 years ago, um, even 15 years ago. And so I, I really appreciate your insight on everything from insurance to switches to access. And, and so I uh, thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. Any last remarks or things that you want to leave us with? Mm, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I just, you know, I just think that, um, our field is so exciting and it's even still like, you know, I would still work except that I'm not, <laughs> I, but I, I miss, I miss the work, especially the augmentative communication because it's changing so fast and it's, it's challenging, but it's exciting because we're doing things, you know, our patients are doing things that they never could do before. It's just, and you're part of it. It's just, I don't know. It's a field that I, I am so glad that I went into. And the fact that I, I mean, my my area was motor speech. And so it was kind of a natural progression as as the technology developed. I was offered, I was able to offer more to my patients than I was when I first started. And that's just really reinforcing even on the bad days. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. I feel yeah. that a lot. So well, carry on, guys. Well, you're the best, and I appreciate you being here. So thank you for for helping me and um, for being a person in my corner. I appreciate that. Good luck with this series. It sounds like it's going to be fun. Thank you. Um, and thank you so much for being here with us tonight. And I look forward to seeing you again. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry, and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript.